Welcome to the Still Navigating podcast. Familiar and unusual stories from a new perspective. Hello and welcome to another episode of Still Navigating. This week we are looking at heroes and anti-heroes and the sometimes thin line between the two. First, one of the business heroes who emerged from the destruction of 911. Then to Italy, and the tragic story of a young man gunned down for standing up for what he believed in. Then it's Sam Bankman Fried, the most infamous white-collar criminal since Bernie Madoff. But is there a little more to his story? Finally, let's indulge in some pastry tourism in Rome's northern suburbs. From the Ashes Fact and fiction. US TV drama series Billions charts the epic struggle between ruthless, amoral hedge fund manager Bobby Axelrod, played by Damien Lewis, and dogged but deeply flawed US district attorney Chuck Rhodes, paid brilliantly by Paul Giamatti. It's gripping stuff with a real authentic feel, thanks to one of the co-creators, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who wrote the best book about the 2008 financial crisis, too big to fail. Paul Giamatti's character is based on Preet Bahara, US District Attorney for the Southern District of New York, who prosecuted numerous Wall Street executives and some of the US's largest banks for insider trading and securities fraud. Damien Lewis's character is more of a composite of several infamous Wall Street players, notably head fund manager Stephen A. Cohen of the eponymous SAC Capital, He was banned from accepting outside investment into his fund after pleading guilty to wire and securities fraud. And it's also based on Howard W. Lutnick, chief executive of Cantor Fitzgerald, a mid-size investment bank and brokerage firm. A bank, not a hedge fund. September 11th, 2001. American Airlines Flight 11 struck Tower 1 of the World Trade Center between floors 95 and 99. Kentoff Fitzgerald's corporate HQ and New York offices were on floors 101 to 106. All 658 employees and 50 contractors and visitors in the building were killed that day. Nearly a quarter of all the dead in New York on 911 were Cantor employees. As is clear from the opening scene of episode 1 of Billions, The founding myth of the firm is that almost all of Axe Capital's employees were killed in 9-1-1, except Bobby Axelrod himself and a few others. Billion starts to diverge from reality, with the plotline that Bobby Axelrod's wife's brother was a fireman who was killed in 9-1-1. So when it's discovered that immediately after Tower 1 was hit, Axelrod starts shorting airline stocks, it doesn't go down too well. Like Axelrod, Lutnick wasn't in the office that day. He'd been dropping his son off for his first day at kindergarten. Again, like Axelrod, he did something pretty awful in the aftermath of 911. Four days after the attack, he stopped paying the salaries of all Cantor Tower 1 employees without knowing if any had survived. A self-made man, pugnacious character and social climber, Lutnick had made plenty of enemies on Wall Street on his way up. Some, according to the New York Times, gloated over Cantor's devastation. 
and stopping paychecks so early was a serious PR misstep. So astonishingly, far from being the end of Cantor Fitzgerald, in the five years after 911, Lutnick oversaw the rebirth of the firm and his own personal redemption from villain to symbol of resistance. For the layman, firms like Cantor Fitzgerald exist in a parallel reality from us, although chances are that if you have a defined contribution pension, whoever runs that will engage with firms like them. Not in the big league of Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. They work with medium-sized business customers offering equity, bond and real estate trading services. Bonds would prove to be particularly important in Cantor's survival story. Because there's no New York Stock Exchange equivalent exchange for bonds, other financial services firms use middlemen like Cantor to trade for them. In 2001, Cantor had a 70% share of the lucrative market in US Treasury bonds. Unlike Axe Capital, Tower One of the World Trade Center wasn't Cantor's only office. They had 300 people in other buildings in New York and, crucially, 700 employees in London. Then in the years before 911, Lutnick had invested heavily in an electronic trading subsidiary called eSpeed. This allowed trades to be cleared electronically without armies of brokers shuffling slips of paper. By routing trades through London instead of New York on eSpeed, Incredibly, Cantor Fitzgerald were open for business on September the 13th when the bond markets reopened, just four days after 911. Over the next few years, although their share of the bond market fell to 50%, these were boom times for US Treasury bond traders as the US government needed to finance its growing deficit. Because Lutnick had majority shareholder control, he was able to restructure the business quickly to take advantage of the rapid growth in broker-driven bond trading after 2001. He spun off a new company to focus on this area called BGC and merged eSpeed into it, leaving the equity and real estate rump in Cantor. Lutnick, of course, kept majority shareholder control in both. The key to his personal redemption was a fund he set up for employees' families to give 25% of Cantor's profits away for five years. The profit share amounted to around $180 million. Spit for family, perhaps this doesn't seem so generous, but it was leading edge at the time. In 2003, Howard Lutnick is still chairman and CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald and BGC Group and continues to have majority voting power. The business employs more than twice the number of people it had pre-911. However, there may be some Lucknick shame clouds on the horizon, according to ratings agency Fitz. Rating Cantor Fitzgerald's debt as triple B, they cite the risk of an idiosyncratic liquidity event and material key person risk associated with the outsized influence of Lucknick over the firm. Bobby Axelrod moved Axe Capital out of New York to Leafy, Connecticut. Howard Lucknick stayed in the city and 10 years after 911, was still in a 103-storey high-rise in Manhattan. Rumour has it that his office was on the second floor. Epitaph to the Years of Lead In a square in northern Rome, there's a very unusual modern sculpture 
It looks like a giant cast concrete egg that is split open to reveal hands reaching out, as if struggling for life. On the plinth is the name Walter Rossi, 1957 to 1977, and below it an epitaph with a date. It reads, They snuffed out your short life. They stilled your strong body, but they will never be able to destroy your ideals, which will always remain alive. Walter Rossi, 30th of September, 1977. This, in brief, is Walter Rossi's story. The late 70s and early 80s were a period of extreme political turmoil in Italy. The conflict between alliances of organised workers and student idealists on the far left, with neo-fascists, ideological heirs of Mussolini on the right, is known as the Anni di Piombo, the years of lead. The kidnap and murder of former Italian PM Aldo Moro in 1978 by the Red Brigades and the bombing of Bologna railway station by neo-fascists in 1980 are two of the most notorious atrocities of the period. Walter Rossi was a member of a militant communist group called La Luta Continua, the struggle continues. Rome in late September 1977 was a very tense city, with frequent armed clashes between fascist groups and left-wing militants. On the 29th of September, 19-year-old Elena Pacinelli was shot three times in a drive-by shooting in Piazza Igea, today's Piazza Walter Rossi. At that time, it was a meeting place for La Luta Continua. The next day, September the 30th, in protest, Rossi organises a mass leafleting in a nearby area called Balduina, a known stronghold of the MSI. That's the Movimento Social Italiano, a militant right-wing group that Rossi believes are responsible. Rossi's group are soon attacked with a barrage of stones and missiles thrown by the Messini, MSI supporters. Things escalate quickly and Walter Rossi is shot in the back of the head by someone shielding themselves behind the police van. His friends take him to hospital, but he's already dead. Over the next few days, Walter Rossi's death ignites a wave of violence directed at the offices of fascist organisations across Italy. As many as 100,000 people attend Rossi's funeral. No one has ever been prosecuted for his murder. In 1979, the sculpture was placed in the now renamed Piazza Walter Rossi. Created by the sculptor Giuseppe Rogolino, it represents a giant cracked meteorite. Despite the force of impact, hands are emerging, a symbol of the unquenchable spirit and idealism of youth. A week after we walked through the square, there was a simple ceremony of remembrance for Walter Rossi like there is every year. Someone came from the mayor's office and invoked the spirit of Rossi as an inspiration for the current wave of student rent strikes. I found Walter's photo on the internet. Handsome, full of life, so Italian. I think my generation would have looked up to him. Please do go online, stillnavigating.com, and you'll see a slightly blurry picture of Walter, and you'll know exactly what I mean. Sam Bankman-Fried, has justice been served? Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF for short, founder and former CEO of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, isn't going to have much of a Christmas. He's in prison 
awaiting sentencing after being found guilty in a New York court on November the 2nd on seven complex charges of fraud and conspiracy. At sentencing on March the 28th, 2024, he could get a maximum of 110 years. That's up there with the most notorious white-collar criminal of them all, Bernie Madoff, who was sentenced to 150 years. He died in prison in 2021. Other business fraudsters have got off much more lightly. Enron CEO Jeff Skilling, 24 years. Elizabeth Holmes, founder of blood-testing startup Theranos, 11 years. Adam Neumann, founder of lifestyle office space empire WeWork. And Let's Greensill, founder of supply chain finance outfit Greensill Capital and close friend of Lorne Cameron of Chipping Norton, are both free men. The business that got SBF, the 31-year-old son of two Stanford legal scholars and a graduate of the, of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in trouble, wasn't FTX, but the personal cryptocurrency trading firm he set up first, Alameda Research. The jury were convinced by the prosecution's case that FTX was just a front to raise capital for Alameda, which then made speculative bets on cryptocurrency derivatives and other asset types. $13 billion was borrowed like this from XTX's customers. It seems like an open-and-shut case. But are there any mitigating factors? Or should SBF get ready to spend the rest of his life in jail? The short duration of the trial and the speed with which the jury reached the verdict five weeks and four hours respectively, are slightly concerning for such a complex case. The Theranos trial took 18 weeks. Enron took 14 weeks. The defence gambled by putting SBF on the stand. Entitled, arrogant and really rather odd, this didn't pay off. And by perjuring himself multiple times, he will have made his sentence longer. The prosecution key witnesses were close friends of SBF's. His girlfriend and head of Alameda, Caroline Elson, and Gary Wang, co-founder of FTX. Above all, the prosecution kept it very simple for the jury. As Damian Williams, US attorney for the Southern District of New York, said after the trial, this kind of corruption is as old as time. This case has always been about lying, cheating and stealing. As the judge Judge's sentencing benchmark will be king of the Ponzi's, Bernie Madoff. How do SBF and Madoff compare? Madoff also had two businesses, a legitimate stock brokerage and a criminal asset management company through which he committed a $65 billion fraud. Bankman-Fried's fraud was $8.6 billion, with $7.3 billion of that recovered so far. Madoff's business was a pyramid, pyramid scheme of no substance. Alameda invested in concrete, well, sort of concrete assets. For example, a 500 million investment in AI startup Anthropic is now worth 4 billion. As business writer Michael Lewis put it, Madoff got life and his depositors lost everything. SBF will get life and his FTX traders will get their money back. Madoff, like a lot of the very wealthy, practiced what I'd call vanity philanthropy, giving away money to causes that made him look good. 
Think opioid criminals like the Sacker family and their extensive funding of the arts would be another example. SBF and his maths nerd mates believe in a very different concept called effective altruism. This applies the type of quantitative analysis from which they made millions trading crypto to the world's biggest social, environmental and medical problems. And they were prepared to put their money where they believed it would make the most impact. FDX committed more than $160 million to charities in this way. I don't much like SBF, and clearly the jury didn't either. But it's the quality of justice that we serve to the least deserving that should define a legal system, and something doesn't seem quite right here. And finally, let's go back to Rome. Ice cream for breakfast. It was the last day of our walk to Rome. Notionally, it was a pilgrimage as we were following the Via Francigena that runs 1,500 miles from Canterbury to St. Peter's. Our journey was a much more modest 110 miles, from Orvieto in southern Umbria through Lazio to Rome. Ten miles a day for nearly two weeks is nothing to be sniffed at, even if it was a walking for softies trip. We had an excellent GPS app, except under trees and on cloudy days, and our bags were transported to the next hotel. All we had to do was walk. Zoe had just about had enough by this point. Sore feet, basic hotels, rudimentary picnic lunches, and she was running on empty. I didn't want the walking to end. On the last night, we stayed in the North Rome suburb of La Gistuniana. In the morning, we crisscrossed busy Via Cassia as the pavement switched from one side of the road to the other. It was a relief to turn off into an unexpectedly wild stretch of nature reserve inside Rome's ring road, the Reserva Naturale del Insugetata. Instead of the wild boars we'd been warned to watch out for, we came across a large flock of sheep, tended by an old shepherd in a leather waistcoat and pork pie hat with his two large Marimano Abruzzese sheepdogs. This is less than three, three miles from the centre of Rome. We walked steeply uphill out of the park into the Monte Mario Alto neighbourhood. The app said go left, but the sign, in common sense, said go right. So we decided to stop for a coffee at a cafe in a nondescript square surrounded by scruffy flats. It was full of locals chatting, enjoying their morning, morning coffee, shooting the breeze. I went inside to order a cappuccino from the woman behind the counter. Vorresti un cornetto con cello? An ice cream for breakfast? Where did that come from? Fortunately, the man behind the counter rescued me by pointing at a pile of croissants. Okay, I must have misheard. See that, see. Thanks to Dan Etherington, who blogs entertainingly about all things bread, I now know that the Italian cornetto isn't the same as a French croissant. The Italian version of the crescent-shaped breakfast pastry is sweeter, less laminated and more bready than its French cousin. A few hours later, we made it St. Peter's, the end of our pilgrimage, skipping the long queues as we were bona fide pilgrims. The next day, as it was Zoe's first trip to Rome, we did the Piazza Navona, the Colosseum, Trevi Fountain, the Pantheon, etc., as a second-time tourist in the Eternal City, I was happy with Cornetto Gate. This was the Still Navigating podcast, 
Everything you've heard today and a lot more is on stillnavigating.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.